Let's pray together. Father, we just want you to wrap your arms around our church family this morning. Lord, I know that uh, uh, I'm already getting contacts from people all over America who are watching with us right now. Lord, wherever they are, whatever their situation is, Lord, I pray that you would just reach to all of us right now and minister your peace to our hearts. Uh, Lord, one of the biggest things that upsets us is uncertainty and not knowing, and that causes us anxiety. And Lord, you said, be anxious for nothing, but by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. So God, we make our requests known to you this morning. You know our anxieties, you know our stress levels, you know our fears of uncertainty and not knowing. And God, I pray that you would just remove all of those from our hearts and minds and replace them with a peace that passes all understanding, a calm assurance that the world has seen many things before and this too will pass, that you've got us right in the palm of your hand like a shepherd. You're caring for us, you're feeding us, you're leading us, you're guiding us. Lord, we have the peace this morning that nothing can touch our lives unless it passes through your permission and so, God, you have a purpose in everything, and we'll be looking for your purpose. And, God, I pray for the health and strength of our church family. Lord, let us set aside all anxieties now as we open the word of God. Let them melt as we hear the words of John that you have commissioned for us. And, Lord, let us be mindful this morning of how to put these things in play in our own lives. So, Lord, we pray for our disciples around the world. Lord, we pray that you would minister that same peace and health to them and lord give them assurance knowing that you're going to provide for all of their needs also according to your riches and lord you'll not let your your people uh, go hungry lord you're going to provide for them and lord we'll do our part and lord i pray that this would be a time even when the cornerstone family would really rise to the occasion and and lord let our faith be shown in our giving this week and Lord, we'll help our brothers and sisters. Lord, bless us now as we open the word of God as a family. Lord, we pray that uh, this uh, marvel of technology, Lord, would be a, an instrument in these days to minister to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, I'll let Jeremy move out of the shop for just a second. And if you've got uh, version open, you're gonna have my sermon notes as always. We're gonna uh, experiment this morning and see if we can put also the what would be our, our church graphics package right up on our living room TV here. We'll, we'll see how that goes this morning. Nonetheless, they're in you version, and you can find them all, all right there. Uh, last week, we talked through 1 John chapter number 1. There were some verses I told you in 1 John chapter number 1 that were among the most powerful verses in your entire Bible and should be committed to memory, and you'll, you'll see them and their influence pop up again in chapter two. Let me recap in one sentence. Last week, John spoke to us about the reality of our sin. If we say we have no sin, we make God a liar. Sin is a reality. It's, a, it's, it's, it's something that's true of all of us. And so we talked about how we're supposed to feel about that and how we're supposed to deal with our sin. Um, in 1 John 1, 7, it's one of those verses. If he says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And then down in verse 9, he said, but if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us 
of our sin and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So let me summarize chapter one this way. John told us sin is a reality. You have to confess it to maintain that walk, that walk in the light. Uh, you have to acknowledge your sinfulness before God and you have to confess it to him. And you can find cleansing. We have the promise of cleansing through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. There's where we find forgiveness. Now, he's going to transition into chapter 2. In chapter 2, there's a few questions we need to think about. And let me challenge you with these. What am I to think about the fact that I still sin after I'm saved? I, I told you last week I was saved as a child. And so as I think about my own life, the sins that I can consciously think of, they were all committed after I was saved. What am I to make of the fact that I still sin after I've entered into a relationship with Christ and he's proclaimed me to be forgiven? Why do I go on committing sin? And what am I to do about that? That question's going to pop back up this morning and John's got another answer for that question. Further, let's expand it to, to everyone who's watching this morning. Does God expect us to be sinless? Uh, there are some religious groups that teach that a human being can get to a point of sanctification. Maybe use a different word. They can grow to a point spiritually where they don't sin anymore. While that theoretically could be true, I've not actually met anyone about whom it is true. So uh, I can't validate that one way or another. Uh, instead, I have quite an opposite thing I find to be taught here in 1 John chapter number 2. So I want to ask you the question, does God expect us to be sinless? If you can come to an answer about that, and the answer is no, he does not have that expectation. A lot of that self-loathing uh, or beating up of ourselves that we do, you can dismiss that now because maybe you've set an expectation that's so high for yourself that's even beyond what God knows is practical and, and true about us. So Let's open John chapter number two. It opens with praise and it opens with encouragement for John's children. And here's the opening thought of chapter two. John's about to tell his disciples, his children's what he calls them. He's about to tell his disciples, try to avoid sin. Let me read verse number one. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Try to avoid sin. But if, but if anyone does sin, here's that expectation. Uh, John says, I want you to try not to sin. But if you do, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So John's pleading with his disciples, don't engage willfully, voluntarily. Don't premeditate that you're going to live a sinful lifestyle and uh, in chapter one, the confession of sin is the right expectation for a child of God. Just confess that, ask for forgiving, forgiveness, and you'll, you'll have God's forgiveness and cleansing. Now in chapter two, he builds that and he says, not only do you confess, I want you to walk in the light in such a way that you try to avoid sin. Try to avoid it, but I know you won't be 100% successful. Now, it's, it's not a cop-out and it's not an excuse. It's reality. And if you're honest this morning, you would say, yeah, that's kind of my reality. I do try to avoid it. I don't want to sin. I don't want to disappoint God. 
but I find that I do still sin. And so John frames this so beautifully, try to avoid sin, but if you sin, you have an advocate. Uh, that if in English doesn't really, doesn't really work good for us. Um, we are painfully aware that we will sin. John is painfully aware Jesus Christ is painfully aware that we're still going to sin. So when John words this, he doesn't raise it as a possibility. Maybe you will, maybe you won't. The way John's wording it is, it's actually a certainty. You will. I hope you won't, but you will. If is the word that we struggle with because it's hard in the translation. So think about the if statement. And if you're making notes in your journal, uh, if is actually expressing an expectation, not a possibility. So when you read that verse, what you should actually read is when anyone sins. When we sin, where do we turn to? And John says, when you sin, you have an advocate with the Father. And that advocate's name is, is Jesus Christ, the righteous. An advocate is somebody who helps you. Uh, you may have had some circumstances in your life where you needed an advocate, you needed someone to appear on behalf of you. Uh, it's a word that's advocate, is similar to uh, attorney or counselor, or maybe you've had to go to mediation, or maybe you needed an intercessor, someone to sit with you and speak on your behalf. That's what the word advocate means. So John said, don't sin, but if you do, well, I know you're going to, when you do, I want you to go ahead and be at peace because you have an advocate. You have someone who speaks on your behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the righteous. And John worded it that way because he's earned the right to be your advocate because he is righteous. Verse number two, he is the propitiation for our sins. Going to get some big words this morning from John. He's the propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And it's important for us to remember God didn't just die for the Jews. Or Christ didn't just die for Americans or, or white people or one race. He, he died for our sins, Cornerstone family, but he also died for the sins of your neighbor this morning who's living in lostness still or our classmate who doesn't know Christ or our colleague and coworker he is the savior of everyone if they would just reach for him. So let's deal with propitiation. He's the propitiation for our sins. So now I'm going to digress for a moment into a little bit of a theological conversation. We have many people in our, con our congregation who are theologically trained people. So for your sake, let me just throw this out there. When we get to a verse like this, where it uses this big Bible theological word propitiation, uh, theologians go to an, a conversation right about this point that says, is John talking about uh, diverting God's wrath, propitiation, or is John talking about expiation, cleansing the guilt? And propitiation and expiation are, are, are two different theological terms that are nuanced approaches to what Christ did on the cross. Did he just substitute himself for us and turn God's anger away? Or did he actually cleanse the guilt of our transgression 
which is John really speaking about? So let me, let me deal with it in a very concise way. I'm going to define propitiation. Propitiation is the averting of God's wrath so that it's directed away from sinful humanity and towards a sacrificial human. In other words, the judgment that belonged to us, God's going to turn his wrath from us and he's going to pour his wrath out upon one human representative of the human race. And he's going to pour his wrath onto that person as our substitute. Well, I guess we clearly know that that's exactly what happened. I mean, it's not a circumstance, it's not a, it's not a coincidence, wrong word. It's not a coincidence that Jesus was crucified on Passover. It's something, Mom, you and I have talked about a lot and how the feasts play into a, a bit of a timeline that God seems to work on. Uh, Christ was crucified on Passover clearly as an indicator and a message to all of the world that God was using him as a sacrifice. Uh, he, uh, Paul said, for Christ, our Passover is crucified for us. Jesus Christ at Passover became the Passover lamb. And uh, the Jews of the first century certainly understood what the Passover lamb was all about. You'll remember that when John the Baptist was out at Jordan preaching and baptizing people and Jesus came to John the Baptist, John's opening remarks to Jesus Christ, public announcement really to everyone who would hear, when Jesus started approaching John the Baptist, John paused the message and said, this is the one right here he comes right now. This is the one I spoke about. Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And John was uh, really announcing that this is the man that God's wrath will be poured out upon for all of us. He is the propitiation for our sins. So uh, uh, we know that God's wrath is now directed from us to Christ and he bore all of that on the cross. Now, in the same way, the Jews understood that because they put the blood, remember, on the doorposts at Passover. And what it was a sign of is that the wrath of God was directed towards the lamb that was sacrificed and hence the blood is upon the door so death cannot enter the house and touch our own lives. So the lamb took the, the, the wrath instead of the people in the home. In our context, Christ took the punishment for our sins rather than God pouring his wrath out upon all of us. So that's why John uses this language. He is the propitiation. Now, some other theologians would want to talk about expiation. Let me define it. Expiation is to nullify the offense and its guilt so that the record is expunged. Now, I hope you never have a record, but if you have a record, there are some circumstances under which you might get your record expunged. Uh, you maybe commit some driving offense, you uh, go to uh, defensive driving or, or some type of class like that, and you can have your, your crime removed from your record. How about that? Doesn't hit your insurance, doesn't hit your record, and when people were to pull your record, they would say, oh, there's no crime there. Uh, that's expiation. 
it's gone. Where did it go? Well, somehow it was dealt with in a legal manner so that the, the crime and its results, the guilt and all of that have been totally expunged. Now, people are asking, is John talking about just pure propitiation in, in this letter? Or is he also talking about expiation? And the answer is yes, he's talking about both. We know he's including both Christ has become our substitute and the guilt and the punishment has been taken away. We know that because of the near context of verses seven, eight, and nine. If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sins. If we confess our sins, he is faithful just to forgive and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Not only was the wrath of God directed to Jesus, when your record is pulled up, God says, well, it looks clean to me. There is no crime here. Uh, the, the, the crimes have been expunged. My wrath has been diverted. Now, when we talked through the book of Romans some months ago, you'll remember that it says in Romans chapter eight, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Doesn't just mean there's no accusation. It means there's no punishment left to be meted out. Uh, there is no punishment because the punishment was all meted out, propitiation, upon Jesus Christ, expiation. Therefore, the record is completely clean. There's nothing there to punish and there's no more punishment left. Your sin, in a nutshell, has been fully dealt with by Jesus Christ. And the reason this teaching is so important is because Imagine now the peace we rest in and the confidence we have before God, knowing he's fully dealt with it. Even those secret things no one knows about that you have confessed to God, they're fully dealt with by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. All right, now, verse number three, the fault transitions, and John begins to speak to us about keeping Jesus' commands. And by this, we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments, whosoever says I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. For those who are journaling, in verse number three, I want you to underline these words. We know that we, and then right before the comma, underline the words, know him. Here's what John's saying. We know that we know him. Hereby we know that we know Jesus Christ. We know that we know God in a personal relationship. How do we know that we know him? Well, he's going to now explain that. And uh, one of the things that will interest you is these first six verses, the focus is really not about our sinning, but it's rather about keeping Jesus' commands. And you say, yeah, but you just said I sin after I got saved. Yeah, that's true. But you don't make efforts to sin after you get saved. You make efforts to keep his commandments. It's a, it's a slight shift. It's, it's not a slight shift. It's a big shift in attitude. It's a big shift in your focus and your, your life mission. We're not living to sin anymore. Sin doesn't have dominion over us, Paul said. Now we've shifted our allegiance and our relationships so that now we're trying, yes, we're going to sin, but we're trying not to sin. We're trying to keep his commandments. So I'm going to give you a bit of an assessment question here. Does your lifestyle involve serious efforts to live out what you profess. 
does your lifestyle involve very serious efforts on your behalf to live out what you profess to believe? Uh, believers can know that they know the true Jesus. That's what John is saying. And by knowing Jesus, we have assurance that our relationship is with him. There are in 1 John, for some of you that are, you know, are gifted and talented students, you can take a, an underliner or a pen or something this week and go to the entire book of 1 John, really, and, and, and second, third, but uh, go to John and start looking and underlining the words we know or know or knowing. Uh, that phrase or that inference, we know, occurs 26 times in John's letters. Now, these are short letters. For something to be repeated 26 times, it's a pretty important theme of the book then. He's writing to a confused group of Christians who've been led astray by false teachers, and he's putting his arms around them. He's saying, let me tell you what we know, not what, not what maybe were, were some obscure things, but here's what's solid. Here's what can be banked on. Here's what we know for sure, and we know for sure that we know him. Let me give you the other side of this coin. Conversely, when a child of God engages in a willful uh, lifestyle of sin, that should, first of all, be a very rare occurrence among us. But when a child of God, let's say, rebels for some reason or for some period of time and lives a willfully sinful lifestyle, you lose your mind temporarily and you, you begin to live a sinful life. One of the byproducts of that is you'll lose your assurance. You'll begin to waver. All of your faith will begin to be shaken because you're willfully doing something that God said you should not willfully be doing. And uh, uh, I would just challenge any believers listening this morning, if you're struggling with assurance of your salvation, take inventory this morning about, am I willfully, intentionally living a lifestyle that I know I already know doesn't please God, make some adjustments to your lifestyle and intentionally try to keep his commands and see what begins to change in your heart. See what God begins to do in your heart in the area of, of assurance. And I'm not saying that command keeping uh, is John's method to ensure your salvation, but John is saying that keeping God's commands is the natural response of those who are in a relationship with Jesus Christ. We say it in a concise way. Knowing Jesus leads to obeying Jesus. The more you know him, the more you want to obey him. I mean, the more you know him and you know how much he loves you and the more you've tasted of his grace and his goodness and his blessings, the more you actually strive to please him in your, in your lifestyle and in your behavior. So when John says, you know, I want you to obey uh, the commandments, I guess something we need to clarify is what are the commandments we're supposed to be obeying? Uh, inevitably, in a group of Christians, or I would say Jews, if you said out loud, obey the commandments, everybody's mind flips instantly to the Ten Commandments, of course. And you would say, well, he wants me to keep the Ten Commandments. I've got to keep the Sabbath day, and I've got to... Curiously enough, the Ten Commandments are not in view here. It's not what John's talking about, but it seems to be a thing that happens in our mind that we need to correct. So when John starts talking about the commandments 
He'll define the commandments both in his gospel, the biography of Jesus, the, the book of John, and he'll also define what these commandments are in 1 John, in the epistles, the letters of John. And let me just go ahead and, and, and give you two of those references. 1 John 3, 23, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and that we love one another as he has commanded us. Verse 16 says this, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. When John refers to keeping the commands, the commands aren't the 10 commandments. The command is loving God and loving your neighbor. The command is love. The commands are love. And he's gonna define that more in just a moment. So when John says, keep the commandments, he's referring to a, a disposition of obedience in the heart and mind of the believer that we have this disposition to obey God rather than this disposition to rebel against God. And while all believers will sin, John's writing and saying, please don't sin. But if you do sin, I want you to know God will forgive you. He doesn't expect you to be sinless. He gets it. But please try not to sin. Make an effort because you know him not to walk in disobedience. So how do you know if you know him? Well, let's read verse five. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he, Jesus, walked. Now, in your margin, you need to write John chapter 15, the gospel of John 15 in the margin of your notes. Twice John says, we are in him. We are in Christ. This is language that Paul also used extensively in the Pauline epistles. It's kind of a, a, a duality here. We are in Christ and the spirit of God is in us. We are both in him and he is in us. John 15, the reference I asked you to write down is that famous uh, discourse of Jesus where he says, I'm the vine, you're the branches, except you abide in me, those two magic words. It means a relationship with me. Walk in the light, stay connected to me. Your life is found in me. I can supply everything you need. So John is saying, uh, abide in Christ, uh, stay in your relationship. Love is the command and uh, true love is a sacrificial commitment to one another. Love's an interesting word to define and this is gonna be my definition here as we go through John. True love is a sacrificial commitment to one another. Do you have true love for God? Do you have a sacrificial commitment to him? Are you willing to sacrifice some things? Uh, you know, we, we sacrifice our, our, our time, we give our talent, we give our treasure, uh, we give him uh, our obedience, our, our will, we give him our praise, we give him, you know, we, we, we give to God out of our own, own lives. But in the same way, he's saying, love your neighbor, love your brother. Uh, do you love? Love is a sacrificial commitment to another person. And just as Jesus laid down his life in commitment for our well-being, he's asking us to do the same thing. For us, 
to love God means that keeping his commands and loving other people will be the expression of our sacrificial commitment to God. And uh, wow, what an opportunity, I guess, during this crisis to show love uh, because uh, such sacrificial commitments puts our own desires on hold and puts the desires of others ahead of our own needs and desires. In other words, that is love. That is, you're saying, I'm going to help my neighbor and then I'll go help do what I need to do for myself or I'll help my brother or sister. They have some needs and I'll make sure they're taken care of. Okay, then I'll take care of myself. Um, as you see people clawing and gouging and trampling one another in the stores right now, uh, that's not the spirit of, of Christ on display. And uh, I want to I want to urge all of our our brothers and sisters be calm because you're to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. If you love your neighbor as yourself, you don't run over them with the shopping cart and steal the stuff out of their their, their cart, you know. And you know, uh, listen, it's going to be okay. Listen, let, let the needs of others. Sure, sure, your needs need to be met. God's going to take care of you. Just be calm and. You'll be able to model this somewhere in the coming days. And love for us is difficult because it requires so much proactivity. We're often so busy with life that we miss the opportunities to extend unprompted acts of costly service to someone. Well, wow, it looks like we have some divine opportunity here, doesn't to slow our lives down. And uh, you, may, you may have some time on your hands here where you can sit down and write a few notes or send a few letters or shoot off a text or email or walk across the street and knock on your neighbor. Who knows what, what opportunities may pop up in these moments. And they're opportunities for you to model the love of Jesus Christ. Uh, by modeling the love of Christ, you are demonstrating that you are in a relationship with God. That's what John is saying. Here's how you know you're in a relationship with God because you do the things that Jesus Christ would do. You do them because there's a mutual indwelling. He's in you and you're in him and your goal is to walk as he walked. Really, verses three to six are kind of a diagnostic check for all of us to check and see if we're the real deal or not. And we need a diagnostic check because relationships are an intangible thing. You can't really put your hands on a relationship, but you can see the qualities and the fruit of a relationship by what people do and what people say. So John's saying the one who keeps Jesus' commands, the one who keeps his word, the one who walks in love is the one who truly knows Jesus. And if you truly know Jesus, that fruit uh, from the relationship will be borne out in how you deal with other people. If you've watched a mafia movie, then you've probably heard this phrase. I know a guy. Okay, I know a guy uh, means I have a relationship with someone and therefore I can ask a favor. So uh, I, I have a relationship with someone who's connected and therefore I can ask a favor of that person. Uh, another way of saying this in common usage would be it's not what you know, of course, it's who you know. And God is foremost a God of relationships. And since he's made us in his image, he expects us to be relational 
the essential nature of our existence then is defined by who we know, not what we know. This is a very important point for us as a church because this concept really guides our philosophy of uh, teaching, making disciples. Really, This really guides our approach to ministry. Let me say it another way. Some are focused on teaching their followers to better know the Bible. We're focused on teaching our disciples the Bible so that they'll better know God. We're not really interested in being the smartest Bible people in the room, although we want to know it and we want to be able to teach it well and we want to be able to teach our children well. But knowing the Bible is not the end game here. Knowing God is the end game here. It's not about what you know. You can fill your head with all the Bible knowledge in the world, never make a single disciple, and therefore leave no lasting impact upon planet Earth after you're gone. Or through the Bible and a study of the Bible and an application of the Bible, you can get to really know God. And if you know God, you'll be transformed to be like Christ and you will leave a lasting impact upon this world and you'll go forward in your uh, eternal existence in a close relationship with, with Jesus Christ. So remember, it's not what you know, although we want to know, it's not what you know, it's who you know. John, verses 7 through 11, now, John's about to transition his thoughts from loving God to loving your brothers, and I've already hinted at that, so I want to pause that for a moment. I'm going to address that at the end, so let's skip verses 7 to 11, and let me go right to verse number 12. When you look at verse number 12, John starts talking about the fact that because we're in a relationship with Christ, our, our whole identity has been reshaped by God. Uh, as I read these next few verses, if you're underlining, start underlining because. The because clause is going to show up over and over. Okay, here we go. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I am right to you, I write to you children because you know the Father. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Now there are six because clauses and they focus on the spiritual life stages of John's disciples. Now, at Cornerstone, as we teach people how to make disciples and assess where they are in their spiritual walk, we talk a lot about being a, an infant or a child or a young adult or a parent. John's doing a very similar thing right here with his disciples. He's saying, I'm watching you grow. I'm seeing you grow. And at whatever life stage of development you're in spiritually, you are valuable to God. And, and I could look at you who are just young men or, or children, and even though you're children and not fully formed parents, still you're learning, you're overcoming, uh, you have all these great qualities to you, you're God's victorious children, I, I love you so much, you're growing to be so strong, 
I can see you're walking in the light and Christ is transforming you. You're, you're being changed to be more like Jesus Christ. Now, as your pastor, <laughs> this is a beautiful language, I can echo the same thing about our Cornerstone Fellowship of Christ followers. Uh, listen, for all of you listening this morning, I know you, I'm watching you. We're assessing each other's lives. You are strong. You, you are overcoming the evil one. You are walking in light. You do know the Father. Gosh, I almost want to break out into Winnie the Pooh. You're stronger than you think you are. You're smarter than you think you are. And, and that's really the language that, that uh, John is using with his disciples. This is high praise. That's what I want you to know. 12, 13, and 14, you put a little star here. This is high praise from a direct disciple of Jesus Christ to a new generation of disciples. And he's saying to them, yes, yes, you've got this. Yes, it's, it's working. It's happening. I can see the transformation happening in your life. Stay with it. Stay in that abiding relationship with Christ. You've got this. Uh, all of this confirms that uh, uh, you know that you have a walk with Christ. You know that you have a relationship with Christ because you're seeing your own growth. Your fruit will bear witness to the fact that you know Jesus Christ. In, in a nutshell, John says you are God's victorious children. Now that wasn't just written to John's disciples. This is a letter that was to be circulated to every church, including ours. Cornerstone, listen to me this morning. You are God's victorious children. Uh, again, keep it in context, though. We are not artists uh, of our own transformation. Uh, we are the canvas. We are the clay. Uh, so there's no pride that needs to be involved here when we say, man, I'm growing, I'm doing great. Don't feel guilty about pride there. and Don't let it be pride because we all understand we're not the artist. We're just the medium he's using. We're the clay or the canvas and is truly God's spirit. It is the work of God that's transforming us to be like Jesus Christ. He's called us out of a world that's in rebellion to its creator. And he has transformed us so that we can reflect God's own character to this world. This is what we were originally designed for. And now that we're in this relationship with Christ, we reflect the praise that the creation should give to God. We reflect that praise back to God. And that's what we're doing today. We're worshiping God as his creation, but we are also being transformed by our creator to be like him. And your transformation has made you beautiful people. I'm not saying you are not beautiful before, but in a spiritual sense, he says you're beautiful people. You're, you're as different from your former self as a caterpillar is from a butterfly. And while the butterfly can't take credit for its own beauty, it was once not a thing of beauty, but it now is a thing of beauty. And it was the creator that made the metamorphosis in its life possible all of that can be said of us as well, too. Let me give you an example. One of my favorite books in its unabridged form, it's quite lengthy, though. It's, it's like a phone book, used to be, uh, uh, Les Miserables. Uh, it's one of my favorite musicals. Um, and if you know the storyline of, of Les Mis, Les Mis is one of the most, I mean, it's a genius literary work by Victor Hugo. Uh, Les Mis is a mirrors the storyline that we're talking about. It is a story of redemption. 
Uh, for those of you who don't know the storyline of Les Mis, it's the story of a convict. His name is Jean Valjean. And this convict is out on parole. And all he did was steal some bread because uh, a child was starving. But he got caught stealing, got convicted, got paroled. And on parole through a series of events, tried to find a place to lodge and ended up in the home of a priest. And as he lay in the home of a priest, the priest treated him, knowing he was a convict, on parole, the priest treated him with such dignity and such respect and such love. As Jean Valjean lay in the priest's home that night, Jean Valjean saw the silverware, the silver platters, the silver cups, the silver candlesticks. And Jean Valjean said, I could steal that stuff and run away right now and be a rich man. And he wrestled with it. He wrestled with it. And finally in the night, he gathered the silverware and the plates and he ran out the door and ran away. And sure enough, the law always gets you. The law caught up with Jean Valjean and they brought Jean Valjean back to the home of the priest for identification. Priest, is this the man who stayed in your home? Is this the one who stole your stuff, etc., etc. And in the story, the priest comes to Jean Valjean in the company of the police, and the priest embraces him and hugs him, and he says, Oh, my dear friend, Jean Valjean, it's good to see you again. Listen, why did you leave in such a hurry? Listen, I see you took the gift that I gave you of the silverware and the platter. But Jean Valjean, my dear friend, you forgot the candlesticks that I also gave you. And he gives him two silver candlesticks that are worth more than all the other stuff. And he says uh, to him, well, why would you leave the best behind? Then privately, the priest, so, so uh, the priest says to the police, no, this man didn't steal anything. That was a gift I gave to him. And so the charges are all dropped. And the priest speaks privately to Jean Valjean and he says to him, now listen, I've given this to you as a gift. Let this be the turning point in your life. Never steal again. Be a changed man. And in the story that made such an impact upon this man, Jean Valjean, he had been a recipient of grace and mercy and kindness and love. And it affected his life so profoundly that it became a transformative event in Valjean's life. He became a respected business owner, employed the whole community, did nothing but good deeds for the rest of his life, raised somebody else's daughter who was, mother died as an orphan, raised her as his own daughter. I mean, just, the story's a beautiful story of redemption. My point is this, likewise, you and I have been recipients of God's grace in such a way that we've received all of his gifts and all of his love and all of his mercy. And we must take it that all in and we must use that and say, God, transform us into a beautiful image of your own son, Jesus Christ. By grace and by love and by goodness, we have overcome the wicked one. The darkness can never extinguish our light. We are the overcomers in the Bible. We are the victors. We don't fight evil with evil. We fight evil with good. We fight darkness 
with light. We fight hate with love. Now, expository studies like this are very beneficial because they help us keep everything in context. And if we didn't have that context of this high praise, verses 12, 13, 14, where John's saying, you guys rock, you are crushing it for Jesus Christ, then the next section you would take is a real scolding. But I give you that context so that you know this is not a scolding what's coming. It's just an encouragement. Okay, so let me read you the next section where John says, do not love the world. Verse 15, do not love the world or the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. In other words, if we didn't have the verses above, we would think, wow, John's being really rough on these guys. He's not. He's actually just praised them so much. And now he's just cautioning them and saying, you're crushing it. You're God's victorious children you're overcoming, you're doing a great job, but let me also just caution you, don't love the world, the things of the world. So since John is teaching that a love for the world is incompatible with a love for God, we have to figure out what that means. Because we all know in John 3.16, the other book that John wrote, he said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, and here's the thing, in the Greek, the word cosmos can have many definitions. It's a nuanced word. Like in English, we have nuanced words. In John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, it didn't mean God loved the rebellious system of the world. It means God loved the people of the world. And it's very clear by the context that God loves people so much, people of the world, all kinds of people, that he gave his only begotten son. Here in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, the nuanced meaning of the Greek cosmos world, when it says to us, God's children, love not the world, it means a system of rebellion against God. That is the definition. So don't love the system. Don't fall in love with a worldly philosophy, a system that is in rebellion against God. I can say it in other ways. We're not to, we who are of the light are not to love the darkness. We who are God's children are not to love that which indulges itself in rebellion against our heavenly father. And John's next verses make the context very clear. Let me read verse 16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes, uh, sorry, the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the father, but is of the world. It is clear now that John's defining some rebellious behavior against God, pursuing your lusts. Do whatever you want to do. Do whatever makes you feel good. If you want it, just get it. You know, all of that gratif self-gratification, that's what John's talking about. All that rebellion against God. Verse 17, and the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Let me, let me kind of just sum this up in a few sentences. What John is saying is that since we've been transformed, what we love has shifted. Because we're being transformed, that, that rebellion against God, that defiance of God, we don't love that anymore. Matter of fact, it, we, we feel very bad about that now. Our, our feelings have changed. Our affections have changed. Yes, we still sin, unfortunately. But when we do, we don't feel good about it. We actually feel bad about it. That's what's changed. Our affections have changed. Because we know God, we're learning to be like God and it's changed how we feel. 
about obeying God and, and walking with him. I think a great illustration of this might be the, the President Abraham Lincoln. One of the things that was written about Abraham Lincoln a lot was uh, re really when you read biographies or things written about him, uh, uh, one of the things that'll strike you is how much everybody loves Abraham Lincoln. Uh, you very, very rarely will pick up a writing where somebody's reading really critical uh, of Lincoln. Almost always it's just praise and praise and here's what a good man he was and here's, here's how smart he was and here's how, you know, how much character this man had. They just exude praise for Abraham Lincoln. Um, an interesting story uh, to me was uh, that of uh, Seward. Uh, 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 William Seward was, uh, let me see if I can put it in context. We're in a presidential election season right now. So just imagine you live back in the days, uh, in, in the mid uh, or early mid 1800s, and the Republican Party is about to nominate its candidate for president. The most famous Republican of that day was not Abraham Lincoln, it was William Seward. Uh, uh, the one that everybody said, this is the best politician, this is the most brilliant mind, this is the best statesman that the Republican Party has, hands down, everybody would have said William Seward. He had a lot of political clout. Abraham Lincoln was considered uh, a man who had failed multiple times in politics and, and in his pursuits. And Lincoln was not as widely known. He had failed a whole lot. And honestly, he was perceived as a log cabin hick from Illinois. He was not a big city smart. They didn't perceive him that way. They didn't perceive him as an intelligent uh, guy who could hold his own with the intellectual and political elites of the Republican Party. He's just a hick from Illinois. And uh, that was kind of the, the concept of Lincoln, the perception of Lincoln as he began his presidential run. But as the campaign began to play out and people began to get to know Abraham Lincoln, the more they knew him, the more they began to love him. Something began to shift. He was a likable guy. And the more you heard him speak, the more sense it made. And the more you saw his calm demeanor and, and you know, I don't know what to say, country wisdom. Uh, people just said, you know, he makes sense. They had confidence, and as they got to know him, they learned to love him. What's interesting is, you know, Lincoln got the nomination from the Republican Party, and Lincoln won the presidential race and became our president. Here's what you may not know. Abraham Lincoln chose for his Secretary of State, William Seward, the guy who is his Republican Party nemesis, enemy, the guy who ran against him and didn't want Lincoln to be president was now offered the position of Secretary of State. And what happened was something that actually happened right here in our own America of the last few years. William Seward said, yeah, this hick from Illinois has no idea how to be president, so I'm going to take the position of Secretary of State. I'll say yes to his cabinet. And from the chair of Secretary of State, I will run the country because the hick from Illinois won't even know what's going on half the time. I have all these political connections. Oh gosh, we'd call that the swamp today. I have all of this, uh, the deep state, deep state stuff going on. And I'll run the country from the office of, uh, office of the Secretary of State. And, you know, we'll just keep the president in his own little, own little bubble and he won't even know what happened. Well, Lincoln was way sharper than they gave him credit for. 
Lincoln had put Seward there precisely because he did know everybody. He knew how to do everything. He knew where all the bodies were buried. He knew how to get stuff done. Seward was sharp as a tack, and, and Lincoln said, I want him on my side, not as my enemy, even though at this point they were still enemies. Uh, Seward did everything he could as a deep state worker to undermine Abraham Lincoln from inside his own cabinet. Until one day, Abraham Lincoln went to Seward and, and Lincoln said to Seward, I want you to know that I forgive you for everything you've been doing. And I want you and I to become friends. And here's where the story begins to shift. Lincoln had Seward over into his home. Seward had Lincoln over into his home. And they begin to develop a friendship. The historical record says that Seward and Lincoln would spend long evenings sitting by the fireplace, talking about life, talking about politics, talking about America, talking about the way forward. And the longer they spent in fellowship together, the deeper their friendship became. Of course, we know that Abraham Lincoln was uh, assassinated and uh, in the Ford Theater that fateful night. What you may not know is that William Seward and his family were also attacked that same night by the same conspirators in his own home. They invaded his home and attacked Seward as well. When they did, Seward was unconscious for two days. They, I don't know if they shot him, hit him, I can't remember the details, but I remember the record says he was in bed unconscious and they couldn't revive him for two days, no doubt swelling in his brain or whatever. Lincoln died. Seward eventually woke up. And when Seward woke up, uh, no one in the room wanted to tell the Secretary of State that the president had died. They, were, they had become such dear friends. Matter of fact, Seward, late in their friendship, would go public in speeches and say, Abraham Lincoln is the most brilliant. He is the smartest, the greatest leader this country has ever had. That's how much Seward's opinion had shifted by getting to know Abraham Lincoln. When Seward regained consciousness, there were people in the room and they were like, I'm not going to tell him. I'm not going to tell him. I'm not going to tell him. No one wanted to tell him that Lincoln had died. And once Seward's mind cleared a little bit and he sat up in the bed, he said, you don't have to tell me. I already know. He's dead. And they said, Mr. Seward, how, do you know, how did you know that the president was dead? He said, because if he was alive, he would be sitting by my bedside night and day until I opened my eyes again, for that's how deep our love for each other was. You say, what changed? How do you go from being someone's political rival and nemesis to being so close to someone that you said he'd be sitting by my bedside if he was here? That's how much he cared for me. Well, to know Lincoln was to love Lincoln. If you can just remember this illustration, let me say it to you in spiritual terms now, to know God is to love God. And if you self-diagnose this morning and say, you know, I'm not sure how deep my love for God is, get to know him better. Because just knowing him, it'll transform everything. Your love will deepen immeasurably if you walk in the light and make an effort to know him, make an effort to keep his commandments and walk with him and 
Get in the word of God and invite him to be a part of your life and listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit. You, your opinions of Christ will transform over time. To know him is to love him. And if you're struggling with rebellion, you just say, I don't know what's wrong with me. I just, I just like to go crazy sometimes and rebel against God. Simply focus on getting to know God and let your affections shift. The more you know him, the less you'll want to offend him the less you'll want to transgress his commandments. So let's close here. Let's go back to verse seven. Let me deal with that section that we skipped where John shifted from loving God to loving your brothers and sisters. This is verse number seven. First John chapter two, verse seven. Beloved, I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have. You've already heard it. You already know what the old commandment is. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you. You may want to underline that little piece right there, in him and in you. And then this last phrase, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So John talks about an old commandment and a new commandment. And if you just read it real quickly, no, Paul's to think about it could be a little bit confusing. It's like we had one set of rules, now we've got a different set of rules. That's not what he's saying. The old commandment is the new commandment. The new commandment is not really a new commandment. It's an old commandment. That's what John's saying. He's saying that which was from the beginning of the ministry of Christ, the message that Christ preached. Well, let me say it to you this way. They came to Jesus in Matthew 22, and they said, Jesus, what's the great commandment? Well, you know, if we had rules to follow and we had laws to keep, you know, summarize it down for us and help us make it simple. Here's what Jesus said. He said to them, they said, what is the great commandment? Verse 37, he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The great command is love. It's the old command and it's the new command. It's the only command. Don't make it complicated. It's all about love. He said, keep the commandments, keep loving God and loving others as yourself. I guess the twist here is simply this. The love was first modeled by Christ, John said, but now it's being modeled by the disciples of Christ. Just as Christ modeled love in the first century, he's calling his disciples to model love in 2020. That's the only thing that's new. We have new players, same commandment. Well, you say it's a new commandment. It's the old commandment. It's the new, it's the same commandment. Love God and model God's love to a world that needs to see him. And John says, maybe it's new in this way. It's true in Christ, in him, and it's true in you. He once modeled it, but now it's our turn. It's our turn to model this for our generation. Jesus used the same language in his discourse in John 13, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have loved one to another. All right, let me deal with verse eight, nine, 10, 11 here really quickly. Verse eight, living out love, is connected to the metaphor of walking in the light. You say, I want to walk in the light. All right, so you live out love. That is the metaphor of walking in light. 
Conversely, verse 9 says, hate belongs to the darkness. So let me read verse 9 and 10. Whosoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whosoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Let me say it again. Living out love is to walk in the light. To hate is to walk in darkness. Since Christ's disciples are extensions of the life of Christ, you listening to my voice this morning are an extension of the life of Jesus Christ, then we are to be shining in our present lives and the darkness is passing. You are shining now and the darkness is passing away. Now, let me just say a word of admonition before, before we close. Listen, this pandemic is going to create many circumstances for us to show love to our brothers and our sisters within the church and to our neighbors outside of the church. I want to challenge you to be able to live out what John is, is saying here. It is, it's not complicated. Just show the love of God. That's all he's saying. And not with words, but with actions live out the life of Christ. So during these days, listen, take time to message someone. Take time to send an email to someone. Take time to pick the phone and actually have a real conversation with someone. And when you call someone or reach out to them, let it be about encouragement. Let it be, hey, you're, you're God's victorious child. You're awesome. You're great. You're shining in the darkness. Let your, you know, you're, you're overcoming you're, you're going to be fine. Let this be a season when God's people really shower each other with encouragement. This is a time uh, for us as a congregation, for the healthy and the strong to take care of those who are homebound and may be weak. I want you to think about the people you would normally greet on a Sunday morning. Reach out and greet them today. I want you to think about the people you know that may be struggling. And, and maybe some of you want to help people, but you don't know who needs help. I would encourage you to reach out to some of your deacons and say, I'm on call. I'm available. I've got stuff. If people need stuff or I've got gas and a willingness to go get groceries for someone, just make yourself available and put yourself out there to those who are in need. Remember, Congregation, God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. Exercise a sound mind and that spirit of love. Don't fall victim to panic. Be selfless, not selfish. Be selfless and walk in the light as he is in the light. That's what living out your faith right now would look like to our generation. Listen, I really appreciate the fact that you guys gathered around this morning and opened the word of God with me. Uh, I want to pray for you. And then I'm going to let Jeremy give us some closing instructions this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that all that we've read from the word of God would be true in us. Lord, you said we are victorious. We claim that. God, you said that we are walking in the light and the light is now shining and the darkness is passing away.
And Lord, I pray that as we let our light shine this week, it would just dissipate the darkness. Lord, it would melt the fears and the anxieties around us. Lord, as we keep your commands this week and we walk in the light this week, Lord, may our relationship and our love and our assurance grow. God, I, I pray that, Lord, through our actions this week, we would truly be the hands and feet of our Lord and Savior. Lord, help us to have a spirit of calmness in the midst of chaos. Lord, we know what maybe the rest of the world doesn't know. We know you're going to take care of your children. And we rest in that calm peace this morning. Father, thank you for our church family. Lord, thank you for the reach it has. Lord, bless our families now. Keep us safe. Keep us healthy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.